Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. And so in our community, a lot of people lost their jobs. Those rioters don't know the devastation they did. You know, you tear down one gas station and 10 people lose their jobs. You know, inner city people, you tear down the post office and, and 100 people lose their jobs. You know, and we lost all of that. We lost uh, grocery stores. We lost uh, Target, the place where we shopped. We lost um, gas stations. There's no gas stations within a one mile, two mile radius of us. Um, we lost a lot. Those are the words of former gang leader and drug dealer John Turnipseed, whose ministry was at ground zero of the recent riots in Minneapolis. This is Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. And all we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Welcome to Life Support. Hosted by Pastor Paul Johnson from Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, a trauma survivor himself. My name is Steve Johnson, director of Five Stone Media, a co-sponsor of this program, and our goal is to use story to bring hope and healing. And now let's join the conversation between John Turnipseed and Pastor Paul. Hey, it's so good to have you on Life Support what we do here on our show is we tell stories to help you find a deeper relationship with Jesus that comes through suffering and trauma, and we want you to know that there's hope. And so I've got a really special guest with me today, and I'm really excited that he's here. His name is John Turnipseed. He's the executive vice president for an organization called Urban Ventures, and we'll find out more about that. But even more so, he's got an incredible story of redemption, and he's got an incredible story of how he's allowing God to use him and his past and the things that are still happening in his life to further the kingdom. So, John, thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you. Great to be seen, brother. So, John, when I when I said you have a story, that's kind of an understatement. And your story is amazingly relevant as we talk right now because mm-hmm. the area that Urban Adventures is in Yes pretty much ground zero for all of the things that are happening in our country. Mm-hmm. What effect has the George Floyd incident and the subsequent riots and so forth had on Urban Ventures? Well, it has sort of slowed us down from doing the work that we were moving very fast. We were moving fast. What I mean by that is that we were taking kids from cradle to college, and all of a sudden we had to sort of take our attention to other things. We had to take our attention to attention to doing more feeding of families, more financial support of families, um, more mentoring of families, more than we had to do before. Um, With the attention uh, gap so big in Minneapolis, just focusing on our kids in school, we do it. We're still doing mentoring. Uh, We're bringing kids in on social distancing and helping them with their homework because some of these kids don't know how to use a computer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's and some of the kids, their computers get stolen at home. So we're we're taking that role as as sort of all teachers also, and so in our community, a lot of people lost their jobs. Those rioters don't know the devastation they did. You know, you tear down one gas station and ten people lose their jobs. You know, inner city people, you tear down the post office and and a hundred people lose their jobs. You know, and we lost all of that. We lost uh, grocery stores. We lost uh, Target, the place where we shopped. We lost um, gas stations. There's no gas stations within a one-mile, two-mile radius of us. Um, we lost a lot. 
And so our community is devastated right now and hurting very badly. And that's a very personal community to you, and that's mm-hmm. part of your story. Um, not only do you live there now, but you have a, a history in that area. In fact, you really controlled that area for a long time, and that's part of your story as you would put it, you've gone from you know a drug dealer to a pimp to now an unbelievable Christian man. Mm-hmm. So, John, tell me that story. Where did it all begin? How did you end up being in a gang and controlling that part of Minneapolis? Well, um, I came from Selma, Alabama, and uh, a church-going family, very good family. I loved intact family, um, sharecropper family, Christian family. And we moved up here. My father moved up here first, and when he when we came up here, he had changed. He was no longer a deacon in the church, and he no longer went to church, and he drank, and he was very violent. We had never seen this before, but we had no family support. By the time I was 13, I was uh, in jail for armed robbery. Um, my life took a dramatic change. I was groomed to be a pastor when I was a kid. That was the greatest honor in our family, and now I was being groomed to be a drug dealer and pimp. I was taken in by a group of people that, um, drug dealers, pimps, um, gangbangers, and they taught me things that I never should have learned. And uh, by the time I was 16, had my first child. By the time I was 18, I had been locked up four times in juvenile institutions and now serving a 10-year prison sentence by the time I was 18. Uh, Being in prison, I... um, learned some things. I took over the control of the prison, you know, for an inmate, that means you are the head inmate, and um, just ran things, all the drugs, all the prostitution, everything that goes on negative in a prison, that's what I did. And so finally, I had no conscience um, and didn't believe in God. And so violence and gangs, being shot and stabbed a few times didn't matter. Um, It just was a way of life. And um, that's it infested my whole family. My whole family started to go into the underworld of drugs and gangs and pimping and prostitution and things of that nature. You know, that old thing about one bad apple can spoil, that's what happened in my family. Instead of raising kids, we were raising criminals. Wow. And you said at this point you just accepted it as a normal way of life. It became kind of who you were. And where did it progress from there? Because I know at some point in that story, God reached in in an amazing way mm-hmm. and, and and began to pull you out of that. So you, you went to prison, mm-hmm. and you became the head of the prison. Yes. So what happened next? So, I, you know, I get out of prison. I went to prison a couple of more times after that, and um, God had already dispatched angels toward, to me. I, I didn't recognize him at the time. You know, he had dispatched one guy that convinced me to go get my GED because I, I dropped out of school. I was kicked out of school at 14, all the public schools. And I went and got my GED simply because he liked me. Another guy enticed me to go to technical school and learn how to be a computer programmer. I didn't know that they were angels at the time. I was still in prison, okay? And then there's another guy that had been sort of trying to talk to me for 20 years since I was 14. His name was Art Erickson at Urban Ventures. And um, so the angels were there. I just didn't see them. I didn't believe in God. I didn't know that he existed. And what happened was I got in the most trouble of my life when I was indicted for 50 felonies. And um, I was already a three-time loser. I was 39 going on 40. 
And uh, that was going to be a life sentence for me. My life was at the end. And also my son got shot. It shot his leg off. It just brutally just shot him up. And he lived. And I seen that as a sign of there might be a God. And then that guy, that had, Art Erickson, that had been sort of trying to talk to me for years, came to the court with me and convinced the judge to let me go on probation. And everybody was shocked because that doesn't happen. The judge, I don't even know if the judge knows what happened, but I know what happened. Uh, God had seen my heart had changed. Mm -hmm. When my son didn't die and somebody came to help me even though I didn't deserve it, I knew that that had to be God. So I asked him, you know, just to take control of my life. Just I didn't know how to live. I just didn't want to be who I was. And uh, that the day I asked him to do that, I became a new person. I became a different person. People thought I went crazy, you know, because I was talking and acting and dressing different and stuff. But immediately God took control of my life. We'll be back to the conversation with John Turnipseed in just a moment. You know, Pastor Paul is hosting this program from a unique perspective. After losing his first wife to cancer, he then experienced the homicide of his young son, Taylor. And that's what life support is all about. Survivors in discussion with survivors. My name is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, and we are so pleased to be a co-sponsor of this program. For more information about our work, log on to www.lifesupportresources.org. And now back to the conversation between John Turnipseed and Pastor Paul. God had seen my heart had changed. Mm -hmm. When my son didn't die and somebody came to help me even though I didn't deserve it, I knew that that had to be God. So I asked him, you know, just to take control of my life. Just I didn't know how to live. I just didn't want to be who I was. And uh, that the day I asked him to do that, I became a new person. I became a different person. People thought I went crazy, you know, because I was talking and acting and dressing different and stuff. But immediately God took control of my life. Wow. And that's, you know, from a practical perspective, before we move on, just the fact that people go through these times in life, no matter who you are, you feel alone, you feel despairing. And God around the edges is always working. Mm -hmm. You can't always see it. And you, you, you're sometimes you're so you're such a dark place, you, you really don't know where to look even. But that's a hopeful thing, just that what you just said, that God is always there. Mm -hmm. Never gives up on us. Nope. Never gave up on you. And, and neither did some men that mm -hmm. were willing to invest themselves in you no matter where your life was taking you at that time. Yes. And so here you are now, and, you know, that area that you and uh, the gang controlled. And I want to ask you how you got into the gang and how all that happened. But that's now a famous area. It's like that's mm -hmm. center of the world almost. Well, how does that feel to you? Is that a, a strange kind of realization that that now has become such a national uh, point of reference? Um, it's sort of strange that it's a national point of reference, but when George Floyd was killed, it didn't have the effect on us that it might have had on other people because we had seen this before. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we this was like, oh, it happened again. You know, uh, well, it didn't happen in the same fashion, but it didn't shock us 
you know, it just, when the rest of the world recognized it, it did make us angry. You know, it's finally, everybody recognizes it. Now we're going to tear this city up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the attitude of a bunch of the young people. Finally, you know, and we're angry and they just tore up everything. But, um, you know, being in that community, um, my family, um, we just, there was a bunch of us. There's hundreds of us. At one time, there was close to 500 of us living in one community. And everybody knew about us. Everybody knew that if you mess with one of us, all of us were coming. That was a, a family creed. When you were 13, you were, came into the gang, the period. If you were a turnip seed uh, boy, you had no choice because you already had enemies coming up. So that was a way of life. And um, now to see the whole world focused on that, um, my family still patrols that neighborhood. And it's in a good way, actually. Um, they keep. They don't let nobody do fights there. They don't let nobody. You know, somebody got shot there. One of my nieces, but that was a domestic uh, problem. You know that they had, and people are safe there. That's why people from out of town, people, you know, can walk there and look at all the stuff that could have never walked there before. You know, they would have been victim. So it's surreal. Like we're protecting the place that we tore up. How about that? I. Last night I was watching some of the, as we're recording this last night, I was watching some of the activity in Louisville mm. and just trying to make sense of all of it because I don't have the same context that you have. I don't live in the inner city. I live out here in Minnetonka. You know, it's a different place, and, you know, it's easy for me to just say, well, why can't we just have law and order, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I, and I hope this question isn't offensive to you, but, What's it like to be a black man in America? What's it like to navigate the inner city as a black man in America? Because I don't have that. I don't know what that's like. Well, you know, the deck is stacked against you. You know, everywhere you go, you're on display. People notice you. If you come outside of our community, people will notice you right away. You know, sometimes I see little kids look at me like I'm some zoo animal because they've never seen it before. Um and being in places, and I, you know, I usually wear a suit, so I, you know, I get less of it. But um, just knowing that you, you know discrimination when you see it from the inside. Just like you know when somebody's trying to hurt you. You, you, you know that. You know, everybody else might not see it. But it's become so commonplace for just us to be rejected and talked about and treated badly, you know, that it's sort of like the norm. And so that, that makes you angry, but there's nothing you can do about it absolutely nothing so you go through life and you try to do all the things that you need to do you know minnesota um is one of the worst places for african-american men um we're rated as one of the worst um black professionals don't even want to stay here because of the way they're treated and stuff so even though minnesota nice um for mm-hmm. african-americans it's minnesota black and mm-hmm. bad mm-hmm. and that's a, a context that you know i need to listen to and I, we need to listen to the stories that we're hearing, and we can make you know we can try to make sense of them later. But as I see the the legitimate pain that's going on around our country right now, I mean I see people crying, I see people weeping mm-hmm. about what's happening. That's very real, isn't it? That's I mean, very it's real. not imaginary. Yeah, it's like America has woken up out of this out of a nightmare, and you know never before. This is so historic. Think about it: the virus. 
Uh, of course, we've got everybody scared. And then George Floyd, everybody's on edge right now. The police are on edge. You know, uh, I just want to say this one thing. There's three police departments in Minnesota. People don't only think of one. But there's a highway patrol that stops thousands of black people every, every year in Minnesota. There's a sheriff's office that serves warrants. But we're not scared of the sheriff's office. When they serve, come to serve warrant, they knock on the door, and you, you can even say, he's not here, and they'll go away, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, they don't kick your door down or anything. Mm-hmm. Then there's a highway patrol that stops, comes in contact with just as many black people as the Minneapolis Police Department. But we're scared of them for some reason. And in every city, it's the same sense. It's the, it's the police departments, not the highway patrol or the sheriff's department. There seems to be a spirit in the police department, the police department that has us scared. I get nervous when I, a police pulls up behind me because mm-hmm. I don't know if this is crazy, man. I don't get stopped. I haven't been stopped in 20 years, but mm-hmm. I used to, you know, really get nervous. And um, so they, they had a dominance in our community because they could do anything they want. You know, they they took, disrupted or stopped our gang unit. We used to have a gang unit that was so corrupt that the, they, they disbanded it and brought in the FBI. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. But these guys used to beat us, you know, just merciless, take our drugs, take our money, mm-hmm. and just leave us out on the street, sometimes put us in other gang territories. Um, you know, and it was just because it was allowed. They couldn't do that anywhere else to any other race. Yeah, we have a, a man that um, uh, we know here who came to me with another um, white male, and he said, you know, I need to talk to the police. I'm afraid to drive around Minnetonka. And if, for those of you who aren't familiar with Minnesota, Minnetonka is a, a wealthier suburb out in the western part of the Twin Cities. And so we did. We we took him and um, uh, we, we talked to the representative of the Minnetonka Police Department who who was, and I knew that he would be a good guy to talk to. He's very gracious. He's um, he's a Christian, and um, but it was a really interesting conversation because that man's pain was real. He wasn't mm-hmm. imagining it. Yeah. And and thankfully the officer that he talked to accepted it as being the truth and 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 took steps to help him. But I think the problem we run into, John, is we we um, who are kind of um, separated out here, um, and that's just the way mm-hmm. it is sometimes there's a lot of people that say this isn't real. There is, there is no systemic racism in America. It's, it's made up. But mm-hmm. what you're saying is that's, that's nonsense, that it's real. It's absolute nonsense. You know, I challenge anyone that thinks like that to just ask God to turn them into a black person. Mm-hmm. Just ask him. Say, could you just make me reborn into a black person, have all my kids black, and, and then let's just see what happens and stuff. You know, people get in denial when it's like they want to defund the police department. That are pe- that's people that are safe. They feel safe. They, they like police officers, but they feel safe. There's no need to have police and stuff. Well, not in my community. We, we, uh, we need the police. Mm-hmm. You know, we're afraid of them because of how they've been trained historically, but we need them. We yeah. need them to protect us, mm-hmm. and you need them to protect you. Yes. You know, not necessarily from us, but from yourselves also. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So how do you handle that? You're, how do you, as a Christian, keep from getting bitter and angry and allowing that to sort of control your thought processes? Because you have to, in order to do what you do to help people, you've got to, I'm, I'm sure, rise above that at some mm-hmm. level. How do you do that? Well, you know, um, when I was a gangbanger, I was a gangbanger. I followed the rules. You know, it's um, you hurt people, you took from people, 
you defended what was yours and took what was theirs. You know, that's what you did. That was the rules, laws, and everything. When I became a Christian, I, I became a real Christian. I think some Christians, you know, whittle the Bible down to suit them. Uh, I, I take the whole Bible, and God told me to forgive even my enemies. That's what I did. And it takes a, a, a big weight off me because through that, I've been learned, I've met some incredibly good, good, really good white people. All white people are not racist. I don't believe that, you know, because I've seen it in my own life. It was God interacting with me with real Christian men, and I've had a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And so your, your tack then is I'm just going to follow Scripture. Yes. And I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to help me to forgive. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's times when that's that's harder than other times. Yeah. But that's what being a Christian is all about, isn't it? It's about obedience. It's about loving Jesus enough to allow him to transform us like that. Oh, absolutely. And you got to trust him. you got to trust him that he has your best interests at heart and that he will, just like when he was on the water with, you know, the disciples and the storm came and they got all scared and everything. And he told them just to chill out. He got this. That's how I look at my life. I shouldn't be alive. I'm 66. Men don't live this long in my family. Um, heart problems, all that. So what? You know, I'm, I'm, man, I'm living my best life right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, people help me with things. I don't have to ask for help a lot of times if I need help. But I'm self-sufficient. God has just gave me everything I need. And you're the best dresser around, too, <laughs> I got to say. And you've, you know, you've, um, God has led you into a lot of things. You've uh, written a book called Bloodline. Yes. And that's available, and it's, uh, you can easily get that online or wherever mm-hmm. you can find um, a bookstore. And you're also, you know, there's been some uh, uh, many movies made about your life, and there's other projects that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Does that ever kind of blow your mind that God has taken all of this and is molding it into what you see happening around you right now? Oh, absolutely. You know, when people ask me, man, how'd you do all that? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, and I also tell people, never mistreat anybody. You never know when you're talking to an angel, you know. Mm-hmm. So I try not to leave a bad taste in people's mouths, and, and I'm pretty open about my life. That's how all that happened, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have you back again, John, because um, we have a lot more to explore, and um, I had a chance to be with you uh, when you spoke to some guys at the Hennepin County Jail, mm-hmm. and I saw you in action for the first time, and the way that you were able to relate to those guys who were um, glued to every word you had to say because you were, you know, in a sense, one of them. They, mm-hmm. And the moment you mentioned the word fathering, I can help you be a father. I remember at the end you had them, if anybody's interested— you can stay here, talk to me. And they all lined up yeah. to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's what Urban Ventures does, right? Yes. Tell me about that real quick. Urban Ventures, we get into people's lives in a real way. You know, we want relationships are worth more than money. And uh, that's what we try to relate to our people that come there. We don't just want you to come to our program. Most, Almost none of our programs are or grant ran. You know, we raise all the funds. We don't charge fees for our program because the lives of people is is it's a reward that we get. We've seen people do amazing things, but you have to stay with them, especially new Christians. Mm. You can't just say, you know, pray over them, throw some holy water over them, and send them <laughs> out the room right. and say, I'll see you next week at right. church, you know. Right, right. Yeah, it takes investment, right? Yes. And it takes somebody they trust, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Well, somebody like yourself that they they know has their best interests in mind. I really appreciate you being here, John. It's great to see you. 
Thank you. You know, as we talk with John and um, and talk about how God is working in his life, I want you to know that he's working in your life, too. And I want you to know that regardless of what you're experiencing, John had talked about men that came into his life, uh, ways that God was working in his life. And that brings me to Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. And here's what the prophet said. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the suffering and afflicted. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to announce liberty to the captives, to open the eyes of the blind. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of God's favor to them has come and the day of his wrath to their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give beauty for ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of heaviness. And if we've ever needed to be reminded of that message in America, it's right now. And that means that God is preparing something for you that you may not be able to see yet, but he loves you. He has not given up on you. And there's incredible hope in Christ. And so, as John was saying earlier, he turns to the Bible. He keeps his head in there with Christ. And that's what we can all do to survive this difficult time we're in. And I'm so glad you joined us on Life Support. We're, we really want you to find a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's why we're here. And we know that life can be difficult sometimes. And so there are several ways to access this program um, and other programs like it. Our partners, Faith Radio, which you might know here in Minneapolis, is KTIS and their network, MyFaithRadio.com. Uh, a video version is on FiveStoneMedia.com. And then here at Ridgewood Church, you can also check us out as well at MyRWC.org slash Life Support. And you can follow me on Twitter at Pastor Paul J. So, so glad you're here. Thanks again. And we'll catch you next time on Life Support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, Subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of life support.